gathered together from the far reaches of the internet are assembled a network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero, Superman. The Superman Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend, featuring The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, Golden Age Superman, The Superman Fan Podcast, Superman in the Bronze Age, From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman Podcast. I've got a few things to say about Superman, The Superman Vidcast, The World's Best Podcast, and Radio KL from SupermanHomepage.com, as well as the audio dramas Superman, Last Son of Krypton, and Supergirl, Last Daughter of Krypton from Pendant Audio Production. Join hosts Michael Bradley, John Wilson, Billy Hogan, Charlie Niemeyer, J. David Weeder, Jeffrey Taylor, Michael Bailey, Scott Gardner, Cayman Stoll, I'm Isaac, I'm Adam, Dave Eunice, and co-host Scotty V. At supermanpodcastnetwork.com Faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Who are you? A friend. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird. It's a plane. Superman, 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 Superman. This looks like a job for Superman. Superman Forever Radio, the weekly podcast devoted to the Man of Steel. Welcome to episode 42 of Superman Forever Radio. This is an episode coming out one year to the day since the last episode. I am your mild-mannered host, J. David Weeder, and yes, episode 41, or season 2, episode 1, was almost the real last episode of the show. Now, coming back after a year is an incredibly hard thing to do. And there's certainly not a correct way to do it, so here is my meandering attempt at an apology um, in preamble form. To put it simply, Superman Forever Radio went on hiatus due to time issues and some stress on my part. At the time, I was doing this show, uh, Xavier's Podcast for Gifted Youngsters, The Mighty Shield, a Captain America podcast, and I had just begun Pad Smash and Incredible Hulk podcast, so my workload outweighed my time, and I had to do away with the show. It's not something easy to do. It's, it's incredibly hard to do, to be honest. And I couldn't decide. I, it's like getting rid of one of your kids because I liked all of my shows. I and I basically came down to the decision that I would choose the show that at the moment had the least amount of downloads for the latest episode. Do it arbitrarily, clean, cold, Harvey Dent style. And that happened to be this show. Um, my heart was broken. I, it was like a breakup to me. But I had made that decision, or at least decision on the method to make the decision, and I unceremoniously said the show was over, and I moved on, and then shortly afterwards, Mighty Shield and Xavier's podcast folded, almost immediately after. Now, there's a logic there that, well, without those two shows, why didn't this show just continue? Why didn't I just pick up and say, oh, oh, just kidding? But the truth is, I would have brought this show back in a heartbeat. And 
the problem was I felt like doing that would be jerking around the people that did listen and enjoy, and I, it would be jerking them around more than I already had because I just had a hiatus uh, due to personal things. I rebranded it as a second season. I changed the format. With this show, it, it felt like I didn't really know what I was doing because the show started as a general show about Superman. No tight mandate or format. And then I began covering the post-Infinite Crisis books. I added the animated series in, uh, doing episode by episode on that, and then I kept the open topic nestled within that mandate. And the show was weekly, bi-weekly, twice weekly at one point. Truth is, I never settled in. Not really. And after the show was over, it was only then that I knew why it was I never settled in. I love so many eras, versions supporting characters, creators, settings, media renditions, and aspects of Superman that I was never content to put a hard and fast mandate on that. So, to start off with, the show will kick a lot of the mandated stuff to the curb. I'm going to go back to basics, back to simply talking Superman every week. Uh, my overall goal is to show listeners what I love about Superman and his world, and to create an educational show that also makes other Superman fans. That's a pretty bold statement, but make no mistake, I am becoming a Superman evangelist, and my goal is to make Superman fans. But I feel the need to kind of reintroduce myself before I go too much further into what I'm going to do with the show. I'm J. David Weeder. I've collected comics all of my life. Feels like I'm at an AA meeting. Somebody should be, hi, David, you're in the right place. Um, well, to be accurate, I've collected comics for 20 years, uh, but I've been a fan and read them all of my life. Because to collect implies a skill, um, some knowledge base, organization, so on and so forth. And that didn't kick in until I was about 14 years old. This is a hobby slash addiction that for me has had ups and downs, uh, beginnings, endings, resurrections. But ultimately a deep, deep sense of history, a deep sense of personal history. There isn't really a comic book in my collection that I can't pull out of the long box and tell you roughly where I was or what was happening in my life when that book was on the stands or when I got that book. And that is, at its most pure and true form, with Superman comics. Um, really, comics form sort of this roadmap to the chronology of my life. They're, they're the soundtrack. They're a Greek choir in four colors. Trademarking that. Uh, my first actual, well, my first collection, since you can't see air quotes, just assume them, uh, that collection began with stacks of comics. Uh, these were all comics without covers, they were yellow, they were dingy, but they appeared in the gift shop of the American Legion. They just appeared, they were donated by some mysterious benefactor so that gift shop could put some money in and kind of support the veterans. Now over time, I would use my allowance to slowly attain all of them, mostly books from the late 70s. Uh, things like The Amazing Spider-Man, Fantastic Four, Superman Family, and of course Superman in Action Comics. Now combine these with the random off-the-spinner rack comics, eventually had a badly maintained and horridly preserved accrual of comics. But at 14, I got my act together. Got rid of the ratty, ratty random comics, and I really pushed my sleeves up and kind of learned my hobby. I discovered pull lists, bags and boards, long boxes. I was set. And that's around 1991, not to date myself too much. 
This was the year that X-Men and all related books were relaunched. The year uh, Toy Biz began releasing figures from uh, Marvel and the Mutant line of books, as well as uh, the Dark Knight collection, which I'm going to talk about more down the road. But I caught it. I got it. I kept up. I paid attention, looked at what was selling, what, what I wanted to read, and my collection grew over the years with a steady stream of books. And comics... That was a happy number of years with comics because it had its own ritual. Uh, this went on through a lot of uh, the first half of high school, soft, uh, freshman and sophomore year. Friday after school, I would hop on a bus, a city bus, go downtown to meet my grandma, get my allowance for the week, get to the comic shop to pick up my books, and then down the road, the same shopping center my comic shop was in, to the ice cream parlor. This was sort of this old school, you know mom-and-pop type of thing, very eclectic. Uh, but I would go to this parlor with my books, I'd read my books and get a sugar high off of this confection called the Chocoholic, which was my standing order. Um, you might as well call it diabetes in a glass, a Chocoholic. But this was this pure ritual, um, this quiet, s serene, private thing that I did, and it made that time pure. And these were times when the industry, right now they look back on and they shudder. It was the spectator market, which had brought comics into the mainstream, but for sheer collectability. It was the variant hollow foil, prism, chromium covers, they were everywhere, regular character deaths, dark and gritty tones to the book. These were the dominant themes. And this was the rise of Image, Valiant, Dark Horse, this sort of indie vibe had become part of the standard comic market, fueled by big guns, muscular heroes, impossibly curvaceous women. It was style over substance, but I was having fun. Uh, with these rituals, it was pure. Um, and, I mean, at the time, yes, I was buying books that I thought would set me up for my adult life, but they didn't, but they did give me great reading, because I'm not from, podcasting from some palatial estate. Uh, but I have those memories, and it kind of goes into adulthood. And the thing is, the purity of it is, during this time I was reading the Superman books, before, before they became cool during the death, long after the return. I was the uncool comic book kid. I was the uncool kid amongst the uncool kids, because on top of the accepted X books and the Incredible Hulk, I also bought the Square Hero, the Boy Scout. And you know what? I'm proud of that. It definitely brought me a moral barometer. It brought me a lot of perspective to my life that I still have to this day. Now, my earliest memories of Superman uh, go back to the morning airings of Bozo the Clown, which would air the old filmation Superman, uh, Superboy, and Batman cartoons. It would be a Superman-Batman, or one day a Superboy-Batman the next. I just loved the concept of Superman, the epicness. And like many people my age... I watched a lot of Super Friends on top of that. But I don't think I got it the way that, it, you know, the way that I get it now. Until one moment. And that moment was when Superman leapt off the screen or off the comic page into my heart. And it happened in preschool. Now, the preschool I went to uh, would act as a daycare in the morning. Sort of an early drop-off for early working parents or late working parents where the kids from the elementary school down the road would come hang out eat some snacks, watch a little early morning TV, and then when the time came, they would go to school. Uh, some of the older kids would play Superman. 
um, with one charismatic kid really leading the pack, and he got to be Superman. And this girl named Wendy was Lois. I don't know exactly why I remember her name, except for this moment is burned in. That I'm about to talk about was burned in there. Um, but one the morning that I'm talking about, this had been going on. Um, the boy walks in with this button-up shirt. Luckily, they were snap buttons, or this would have ended really badly. And he just says, Wendy, I wore this for you. He busts open his shirt, and there's the Superman symbol underneath. And I believe I remember the girl really gushing. And I realized it. I got it. The iconic quality of the symbol, really the, the mythology, the lore that follows Superman, the ideology that is so important to him, I got it. I didn't know I had it because I'm about five years old at best, but I got it. And it's that seed that began really growing and growing into that magic, that epic world that he was the most fantastic thing in is why I am proud to have been the uncool kid amongst the uncool kids because I saw the potential in the character. Now, it took a long time, a lot of uh, growing up, I won't say maturity, because that's kind of giving myself attributes I don't know if I deserve, but a lot of uh, comprehension uh, kind of followed that, and there's still things I'm still comprehending, I'm still building. Um, now, for a while, I left comics altogether, mostly as a teenager, and quite a bit of that was due to growing up, moving out, and being poor. Well, actually, poor implies that I had money, but that's a whole other topic. So let's speed ahead past that 90s era that I'm just, just talking about to 2006, when I discovered the concept of podcasting. And I said, hey, I could do that. I have experience making shows, talking about comics with blank memory X tapes. So I guess technically my podcasting hobby began in elementary school, but uh, that was those tapes are long gone, and I hope they never, ever surface. So, at that time, in 2006, I tried to start a couple of shows. Never got off the ground, because I was kind of feeling my way along. Um, podcasting is not incredibly complex, but there are a few important elements. And I don't think I got those until 2010, when I started talking about my favorite character. When I started talking about Superman with this very show, which I did for almost a year. Which kind of brings me full circle back to where I started. Why is this show back? Because I need it to be back, to be honest. I want to talk about this. I have a lot of things I want to talk about. Not everybody wants to hear me talk about it. <laughs> but I think the moment I realized that I wanted or needed to bring the show back for myself, uh, for just to get this out of my system, was, of all days, February 29th of 2012. Um, it's Superman's birthday, and the birthday of Michael Bailey, who is my co-host on Pad Smash. Uh, he also hosts the uh, Bailey's Batman podcast as well as views from the long box and a long laundry list that would double the length of this preamble. Um, but both are important to why the show is coming back. I had really been missing the show for quite a while. Um, I tried to start the Superboy, um, Smallville Chronicles Superboy podcast. I didn't feel it. I tried to work with a site called Dave's Amazing World of Superman. It just, it felt extraneous, and it wasn't this show. Because this show means a lot to me. I woke that morning with a friend telling me, that a local comic shop had Superman statues. I might want to go take a look, which, of course, I'm like, okay. <laughs> and I did. I went to the shop, and on the shelf was a statue that I had wanted for a long, long time, something on the top five list of Superman items. It was the Superman Forever statue, which was based on the art 
uh, from Superman Forever number one, done by the incomparable Alex Ross. Um, I knew right then and there that I would bring the show back. Um, but at some point, I guess, would be the caveat. Uh, because I kept making plans that kept getting changed, falling through. Uh, it was just, I had a lot of work to do on Pad Smash, um, rebuilding that site, so on and so forth. And it almost, this was almost the last episode. Because I'd had several episodes written up, and I was at a point where it felt different when I was on the microphone. And I had decided that, you know, if nothing else, at the one-year mark, I'm going to do this episode that you are hearing as a final episode to wrap the show up, to give it a proper ending. And then I heard episode 7 of Bailey's Batman podcast. I mentioned Michael. Uh, he's a good friend. I'm proud to call him friend. He's an excellent podcaster. And here's why. This episode shows exactly why. In episode 7, Michael talked about how Every variation of Batman was still Batman, which caught my attention because it echoes some notes I have for the material we'll be covering later this episode. Um, but listening to that, the way that he approached that episode, it really brought me back to when this show began. When it was a show that I would do for myself, for my entertainment, for my exposition with or without listeners. Now, I like people to listen, don't get me wrong. I appreciate each and every person who listens to my show. But I want to do the show because I love the character and I want to have a place to talk about being a fan because Superman is a level of positivity for me. He brings me a moral barometer. He shows me what I should how what I should do, how I should treat my fellow human beings, that I should be, you know, somebody to watch out for the guy to the left of me even if he's not necessarily watching out for me. And Michael with Batman, if you listen to that episode, I pictured him talking to Batman in a weird, odd way. Um, he put his fandom right on the table, wore it right on the sleeve, and I'm, I remembered those early days of this show when it was that simple, when it was really just me expositing my passion for the character, because everybody should have a passion. They should be able to pursue it with the caveat that pursuing it should not hurt another person. Emotionally, physically. But they should be able to pursue that. And we are privileged to live in a time where we have so many venues to share this enthusiasm and see it spread. And my hope is that the positivity I feel when I read or watch or just think about the character Superman, that positivity spreads to the listeners. That fandom spreads. And when I heard Michael, this episode became the first of many, many episodes. Uh, because I wanted my old show back. I wanted to get back to talking Superman in a very broad sense. Um, now, I talk about Superman a lot on the New 52 Adventures of Superman. I talk about it, uh, Superboy, in the Superman in the Bronze Age, in a segment. <clears throat> but I want to have an area, a soapbox, if you will where I can look at this character, the entire world he lives in, and get back to that positivity. So that's why I'm happy to be back. And I apologize that it took me a year to get to this spot right here. But I want to thank you for listening. I want to thank Michael Bailey for inspiring me. I'm not going to stoke his ego too much because 
he doesn't necessarily like that. He's a very humble guy, even though he is one of the best podcasters you're going to find on the internet. And that kind of brings us back to what is this show going to be now? Because I, you know, I say we're going to talk Superman every week. That's a pretty broad statement, and I want to leave it as a broad statement. Uh, to kind of summarize, Superman Forever Radio will go back to being a weekly show. With a caveat. Um, it's a show in which I will talk about Superman, uh, talk about characters within his world, comic books, action figure lines, uh, movies, anything that comes across my desk. Um, I have most of the, I, well, I have all the episodes for 2012 planned out. I have uh, the first quarter of 2013 planned out, and it's a very, very eclectic, eclectic collection. Um, now, the one thing I do want to mandate that will be coming back from, from the old format is I'm going to be doing the episode-by-episode episode coverage of Superman the Animated Series because I regretted not finishing that. And we will follow that show to its conclusion, and then we'll probably move on possibly to, to Ruby Spears. I don't know if that'll be immediate, but that's way down the line. So the basic format is I'm going to talk about a topic. We're going to do Superman the Animated Series. Uh, episodes will be released on Sundays. Now that is where the caveat I mentioned comes in. The regular episodes will not resume until October 28th. Sunday, October 28th. And I know what you're saying immediately. What is this? You're back? What is this bait and switch? You're not all the way back? What is this? Yes, the show will be back to business as usual on October 28th. The reason for this episode coming out ahead of time is to mark the one year anniversary of the last episode. I did not want another... Uh, I, didn't want, I didn't want anything more than a year to go by. I wanted to mark that one-year anniversary and kind of make it, instead of a an anniversary commemorating the end, I wanted to mark it as a new beginning. But I do want some decent lead time for the further episodes. I want to be able to get those either in the can or written up, because my goal is to keep this show going for roughly the next five years, uh, primarily based on the fact that I'm approaching 35. Uh, by the time the next episode comes out, I will be 35 <laughs> And that is, uh, by my math, five years away from 40. And I want a long-term project uh, to kind of fill those five years. And to kind of point to and say, hey, I did that. Now, Pad Smash, over the next five years, Pad Smash will complete its mandate. Uh, New 52 Adventures of Superman and uh, Green Lantern's Light. Now, those are produced by other people. So they could just decide one day, okay, I'm not feeling it. But uh, this show is all mine. And I want to make that five-year commitment, and I wanted to do it with this episode, and re by returning with this episode. But I didn't just want to put out this episode to say, I'm back, and, and then tell you to wait several weeks before we actually do anything. So we actually will be covering Superman Batman Generations, and the first episode of the second season of Superman the Animated Series. Um, we're going to be doing that in just a moment, but uh, I want to make one more apology for the year. I'm sorry I walked away from this show. Um, it's not going to happen again. Uh, not until I feel like we have covered everything that this show can cover and said everything that I would like to say, which won't be for quite some time. So that is that. Uh, now that we're reestablished, I'm ready to move onward and upward. And uh, we will do that. We will jump right into the material right after this break when you listen to a couple of promos for some fantastic podcasts. I will be right back. Hello, boys and girls. 
It's your dear old Uncle Joker. We've got an internet access here in Arkham, so I'm doing a little browsing. Hmm, low cats, low cats, porn, low cats. What's this? Bailey's Batman Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast devoted to everything Dark Knight Detective. Well, Michael Bailey, where's Bailey's Joker Podcast, eh? We'll see about that. Harley, get our things. We're going to Georgia. <laughs> hey everyone, Michael Bailey here asking you to check out my bi-weekly internet radio show, Bailey's Batman Podcast. Or at least I'm asking you to check it out while you still can until the Joker shows up on my doorstep. Bailey's Batman Podcast is a hodgepodge-type show where I discuss all aspects of the Dark Knight's history. Comics, movies, animation, even trading cards and action figures. Everything Batman-related is fair game, and yes, that does include the villains, which includes the Joker, so he won't kill me. New episodes drop every other Tuesday over at www.baileysbatmanpodcast.com. The site also has links to the iTunes page, the RSS feed, my Twitter handle if you're into the social media thing, and the Bailey's Batman Podcast Facebook page. Bailey's Batman Podcast is a proud member of the Batman Podcast Connection, which you can find at batmanpodcastconnection.wordpress.com. I really hope that's the UPS guy. Why can't I have Batman in my basement? said Mongo, didn't he? That's wrong character, wrong universe, and wrong galaxy. Hold on just one sec. Ah, here we go. Flash Legacies, a podcast connecting the adventures of Wally West, the third hero to be known as The Flash. Join me, Dave Walker, in my bi-weekly journey as I look at Wally's career from when he first donned the mantle of the Flash all the way up to the return of Barry Allen. Find me at flashlegacies.limpson.com So when I went to choose the topic for the big debut return episode uh, many, many months ago, I immediately settled on Superman Batman Generations. Uh, just because it says a lot about iterations of Superman, Batman, and it's John Byrne. So this week we'll be looking at the prestige format Elseworlds miniseries Superman and Batman Generations, an imaginary tale, which is a John Byrne series that looks at the premise, what if the world's first two superheroes 
followed a timeline that began with their Golden Age debuts. Now, John Byrne, of course, has had a prolific career in comics, uh, writing and drawing a lot of well-known projects um, like Fantastic Four, uh, Uncanny X-Men with Chris Claremont, an era of that book that is so widely recognized as the most solid run of the book that it is almost, it is nearly fact rather than opinion, and note the word that I use, note that I use the word nearly. Uh, Byrne also had uh, a hand in rebooting Superman from the ground up following Crisis on Infinite Earths in the well-known Man of Steel miniseries. Now here he returns to Superman and throws in the Dark Knight for good measures. Now Generations was the first of three miniseries. There are two sequels. Generations 2 was a similar four-issue miniseries, while Generations 3 expanded into 12 issues. I did consider trying to cover the full opus, but I ended up coming back to the first one here for its profound effect on the way I looked at Superman and chronology. Now, since each issue is divided to jump ahead a decade um, with each half, I'm going to look at each half of the issue at a time. Now, luckily, while I was doing some prep, I read through the Wikipedia entry on this, and it actually has a breakdown that works really well for our purposes. So for the first time, I am not writing the synopses. I am actually taking the synopses from there, which allowed me to put more prep time into the actual notes for the issues. Now, as far as the issues, all four issues were 48 pages for $4.95. And John Byrne wrote, drew, and lettered all four issues while Patricia Mulville colored each one. Uh, Joey Cavallari edited, and the cover was done by John Byrne. So John Byrne, this is his baby. Uh, he is all over this one. Now, if he wasn't colorblind, he would probably do the colors too. But let's start with Superman and Batman Generations number one, which was released on November 11th, 1998. And the first half is entitled The Vigilantes, which begins in 1939, in which Superman and Batman meet for the first time at the Metropolis World's Fair, where they overcome their initial suspicions of each other to team up and defeat the Ultra-Humanite when he captures Lois Lane. The Humanite and his henchmen, the red-haired L, E-L-L, are thought dead when Superman stops their escape in a rocket ship with explosive results. So, going to the notes. Um, page 1. The 1939 Metropolis World's Fair, which we see on Bruce's approach from the sky in his small plane, is very closely modeled after the 1939 New York World's Fair, with the fictional fair and the real fair sharing a standout structure. The large orb, known as the Perisphere, and a sharp tower called the Trilon. Now, in the book, these structures are used quite a bit, but renamed the Hyperglobe and the Pyramix, respectively. Uh, Byrne looks to have used as much visual reference as he possibly could because the scenery is fantastic. And, of course, beginning at the World's Fair doesn't just set the mood and the retro vibe. It has a symbolic element as well because Superman and Batman are known as the world's finest team primarily from sharing the team-up title, World's Finest Comics. Now, this book was originally known as World's Best Comics, which was launched after the success of a 96-page anthology book called World's Fair Comics, released exclusively at the fair, and featuring Superman, Batman, and Robin. So the Batman-Superman team-up book in many ways originated with the World's Fair, but to be accurate, it would be the 1940 seasons of the World's Fair, since Batman wasn't invented, invented at the time, for the 1939 season. And to be accurate as well, the first actual team-up was in Superman number 76 in 1952, 13 years after this issue is set, 
but the connection to the World's Fair comics eventually becoming World's Finest and being the Superman-Batman team-up book is, it's clearly there. And also after Superman's debut, just very shortly afterwards, there was a Superman Day at the World's Fair featuring an actor in a costume and Superman-themed contests and presentations. So very, very wonderful place to start. Uh, Jumping to page two, Bruce Wayne lands his gyroplane right in the middle of the fair, attracting the attention of the Metropolis Police, whom he tries to pay off. This is Batman. He's not just keeping the Playboy persona for Julie Madison, which is a nice side product, but he's also testing the waters in Metropolis, seeing if the police can be bought and trusted. And speaking of Julie Madison, she was Bruce Wayne's fiancée in the Golden Age. So Byrne lifted that directly out of the comics at the time, four issues into Batman's initial run. Madison was a presence in the Batman stories from Detective Comics 31 until she ended the engagement with Bruce Wayne in Detective Comics number 49. One of the better-known Julie Madison Batman stories featured the vampire, the Red Monk, which was somewhat revisited by Matt Wagner in the 2006 miniseries Batman and the Mad Monk. Uh, Moving to page four, the Ultra-Humanite... He was the first uh, recurring villain for Superman. He made his debut in Action Comics number 13. Now, whether intentionally or unintentionally, the Ultra-Humanite bore a very strong resemblance to William Dunn or Bill Dunn, the villainous main character from Siegel and Schuster's original reign of the Superman. Uh, Jumping to page five, holy crap. This has one of the best shots in the book. It's a full-page splash of Superman making his entrance. It is iconic. His costume is straight out of the Golden Age, complete with the less stylized S, with no serif, um, within a simpler upside-down triangle rather than the pentagonal shield shape. I just love this, and it really needs to be a pinup. I may need to visit Kinko's. Um, Anyway, jumping to page six, Superman silently intimidates the man who accosts him about destroying the park property. There's no words, there's no shaking of the fist, just a solid look into the man's eyes and the argument is diffused. That is not only magical for me as a reader, but it also comes right out of both the Golden Age and early post-crisis rendition of Superman. And here, I think Byrne exhibits a bit of how much the post-crisis Superman didn't just throw everything out. There is a resonance from other areas in those early formative Superman stories of the mid-80s. For more on that, I would check out From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast presented by the Superman homepage. Uh, I'm going to move on to page 7 after that plug. Uh, This, on page 7, it's an awesome split page. But, really, Batman doesn't get the same introductory money shot as Superman. And it's odd when we get introduced to Bruce Wayne who we find out is Batman, and then we are introduced to Superman, who we find out is Clark Kent. But, like Superman, Batman's costume could have just walked right out of a Golden Age comic. There's no scallops on the gloves, there are more arched bat ears on his cowl, versus the streamlined versions we know today, and a large circular belt buckle. Love this look. Um, Page 10. Ah, Superman's secret is revealed because Batman has no qualms about beating civilians. One karate chop to Clark's neck, and Batman knows what is going on because it's like hitting a steel girder. Well, maybe you shouldn't be a bully, Batman. Um, It does kind of bother me that Clark is essentially innocent. He's not committing a crime. He's just trying to question him, and Batman delivers a blow that really could hurt the guy if he hadn't been, you know, Superman. 
Uh, but I guess that fits into the story with what, what's needed to kind of process the story. Uh, page 11, the henchman known as L. I don't know how much subterfuge Byrne is trying to use on this, but it's pretty obvious to any Golden Age reader that the red-haired stranger is a young Lex Luthor, who would, of course, become Superman's main nemesis, inheriting the role from the Ultra-Humanite. Now, in his earliest appearances, Luthor did have bright orange hair and somehow showed up as bald. Truthfully, nobody knows exactly why, but it's stuck. And it's interesting that one of the most prevalent theories as to the baldness comes from an artist confusing Luthor with the Ultra-Humanite, or with a minion of the Ultra-Humanite, to be accurate, which I think, if I'm reading correctly, Byrne is trying into here. Uh, he's developing a, a more cohesive continuity to this, because we're at a starting point where Byrne really can take the continuity of the time uh, from the 1930s comics and really kind of play it more straightforward. Now, as time progresses, that gets a little bit choppier, but let's uh, get to that when we get to that. Page 15, here we see Lois caught by the Humanites' minions and putting up a fight. Don't get used to Lois putting up a fight in this series. Um, now, overall, I was thrown off that this chapter had only Superman villains. But then I remember that if this crossover was happening in, quote-unquote, real time, within Detective or Action Comics of 1939, Batman's rogues gallery really wouldn't have been invented so really, after that, when you think about it in context, the, the choice makes sense. Superman did have a few villains. Batman didn't yet. Oh, fair enough. Uh, page 17, Bruce Wayne, meet Dick Grayson. This is a wonderful introduction to Dick, and it does differ from the original comics in which Bruce met Dick for the first time right after the death of the Graysons. Now, adding this scene to the canon here actually puts a bit more logic behind the choice to slap green briefs and booties on a 10-year-old and put the kid up against the underworld. Uh, taking this into account for our altered timeline, Bruce has seen Dick prove his chops. Dick is more than just a great aerialist and a scrapper. He also knows no fear, and is quite strategic, quite strategic in his fighting style. But this is not Robin the Boy Wonder forever, so I'm going to jump over to page 18, where Batman is holding the thug over the side of the Hyperdome. This page really just pops. It's, it's visual eye candy. Um, it, it evokes the right mood, the retro mood and the dark mood at the same time, because we actually have just the globe appearing cast against a perfectly black background. And once again, Byrne must have had some really good photo reference from the World's Fair. But to be fair, eh, see what I did there? To be fair, the internet did exist in 1999 or 98, um, maybe a little bit before that, when he was actually doing the book. So he may have had some online help. Uh, page 19, Superman and Batman have some banter about tossing the thug over the side. Superman saying that he wouldn't have caught him if he knew Batman threw him over, and Batman saying he wouldn't have thrown the guy over if he knew Superman would catch him. Since we're in the rough-and-tumble golden age, part of me really wonders if they're employing a bit of bad cop, bad cop routine, or if they're actually serious. Because it wasn't uncommon for either to toss somebody off the side of a building, after all, during this time. Uh, page 20, miniature props? Oh, that should throw Batman off. He's used to the giant props. And let's, let's start a tally here. Lois is kidnapped. That is one for the four issues. Keep track of that. Uh, page 24, and after the Humanite and his lackey L, a.k.a. Luthor, try to escape with explosive results, a red wig flutters down to Superman's hand, 
and Superman has an inkling of recognition from something we won't fully see until issue 4. And this is the only part to really pull faithfully from the source material um, in the time frame. Uh, this is the point where the timeline goes from something that could easily could have been a lost tale of the Golden Age into the new timeline, which brings us 10 years forward for part 2 of the issue, which is 1949, Family Matters. Uh, Clark Kent is married to Lois Lane, and Bruce Wayne's ward Dick Grayson is leaving for college. Lex Luthor and the Joker kidnap pregnant Mrs. Kent... Batman and Superman are able to defeat the villains and rescue Lois, but in the process, the Kent's unborn son is exposed to gold kryptonite, meaning the child will never develop superpowers. The Kent's decide to keep the knowledge of his heritage a secret from the boy, and meanwhile, Bruce's wife is revealed to be expecting as well. Um, so, jumping into page 25 of the book, there's no burying the lead with this opening to the second half of the book. The Joker is large and in charge. Uh, this is another page that would make a great pinup or a cover for an absolute edition of the miniseries. Hint, hint. Uh, page 26, Lois is kidnapped again. That brings our tally for two in one issue. But with the prestige format, I don't look at this as a standard issue, which you can tell by the way I'm splitting up the coverage. And let's add to that that Lois is pregnant, but she has her shoes on, so we aren't looking at anything completely misogynistic. Just a little bit. Uh, page 27, Superman is in his more traditional Silver Age outfit, with the shield-shaped insignia in red and yellow, just as Batman will be seen on page 30 in his lighter blue Happy Crime Fighter Batman outfit, still with no oval around his insignia, but the scallops and square belt buckle are present, and the Batcave! This is such an awesome John Byrne near-cutaway image of the Batcave, but it's surpassed by one other John Byrne image of the Batcave that I will talk about in a moment. I wanted to make an earmark of this image. <clears throat> Page 31, Robin is wearing a costume that is right in between the original Dick Grayson look and the Tim Drake look. Now, in Earth 2 continuity, Robin did develop a look that lost the shorts and booties, but added a lot of yellow. And later on, he would even add an odd uh, Nightwing Batman amalgam costume. And it dawned on me right here that this is a book that would not happen in today's market. It's not written for the mainstream, because we jump from Bruce Wayne meeting a young boy named Dick Grayson to a now adult Dick Grayson Robin getting ready to leave for college. And this is a fan-centric story. It assumes that the readers are educated enough in the lore to know that Dick became Robin and then grew up. It's assuming you know that Alfred is Bruce Wayne's butler, and it's leaving those educated fans to put their own gaps together. Now, if this were done today, it would have an Earth-1 style to it, which isn't bad. But this doesn't talk down to the reader, or give lengthy disposition. And by the same token, a new reader would have a lot of trouble with the book, which makes it a double-edged sword. But, back to the story itself, page 32. A, we get Commissioner Tony Gordon, which is actually accurate. Jim Gordon did have a son named Anthony Gordon, who would make his first appearance in Batman Family number 12 from 1977. B. The reference to the Joker being killed in a nuclear blast four years earlier is actually a direct reference to John Byrne's one-shot, Batman and Captain America. Now, this was a prestige format one-shot, and really a companion piece to this miniseries in a lot of ways. Uh, that book actually came out in December of 1996, featuring the title heroes going up against the combined forces of the Joker and the Red Skull in 1945. 
In the end of that, Joker turned on the Red Skull because he found out Skull was a Nazi. And the Joker may be a crook, but he's an American crook. Joker made the large plane uh, that the two were on blow up real good, and the miniseries burned itself into my memory for being eight levels of awesome. Which is really how Generations ended up on my radar, because Byrne had returned to a high stature in my eyes with that, that one shot, and Generations seemed to be an echo of that one shot, which clearly it is. And that was where the other image of the Batcave that I mentioned a moment ago appears, in a much more grand fashion. I remember just staring at that page for who knows how long. It's just, it's such a great one shot. I highly recommend it. And I know it's not on my mandate, but uh, I know Hey Kids Comics, uh, Andrew Leyland covered it recently, and I have to applaud that. It was so good. But if we are referencing that event, does that mean that Captain America is out there somewhere, perhaps on ice in the Generations continuity? I would like to think so. But moving to page 33, this is a bit of a nice garnish to the story. It's Dick flirting with the nurse and kissing her hand before leaving. And let's be honest, Dick is a ladies' man in any continuity. Just ask Starfire, Donna Troy, Barbara Gordon, the Huntress, and many, many more. Um, ooh, page 34. My note on this page literally read, squeal, because it's the bat plane. It's the old school bat plane. Uh, page 35, we get super ventriloquism and a nice reveal. It manages to be a twist, to be honest. Uh, it's a twist upon a twist. And page 37, I noticed here that John Byrne is drawing Luthor in a black dress suit, which is right along with his depiction in the post-crisis era. And of course, that design was Byrne's own. But he's adding a different twist to that, a slightly tweaked facial structure that resembles a Kurt Swan rendition on top of Byrne's style. So kudos to Byrne, because he totally could have delivered the same mid-80s design, and it'd been, it would have been suitable. But Byrne really added something to that, and so I want to applaud him. Bravo. Uh, page 40, a double whammy. A bit of a twist on the standard Batman-Superman disguise switcheroo. Robin jumps in to do a double twist to it. Very nice. I like adding a bit of a cherry on top to the, of the nostalgia, so I really enjoyed that. Uh, page 42... There is a line here that turns this climax from a repetitive scene to a nice bit of symmetry. Because Luthor simply acknowledges that this is pretty much how it happened the first time that we met. And the biggest part of my notes on that come on page 45, where Superman and Lois are trying to decide what to do now that their baby has been exposed to gold kryptonite and robbed of its powers. First of all, the assault on the unborn child is... It... It bothers me on a very real-world level. Uh, Luthor has made attacks on Clark's friends and family in almost every era of the character's existent, but, uh, existence, but this act, even though it happens off-panel, really is almost a rape of Lois Lane. It's really crossing a line that we haven't seen Luthor cross because she has to bear this attack on her body with no visible scars, no signs. It's gruesome in how malevolent it is. Now, having said that, the point where I begin to scratch my head is in the discussion that follows. Now that the baby is fully human and won't have Kryptonian powers, and no, I'm not going to talk about Larry Niven's Man of Steel, Woman of Kleenex, at least not now, the decision of how much to tell a child is in play. Granted, it may have been more, it may have been wise regardless to keep mum just because kids may not have the filter needed to keep a secret identity at certain ages. 
but keeping it because the child would feel some sort of pressure growing up as the human son of Superman? He's also the human half-son of Lois Lane. So even being the half-human son of Superman would have presented a similar challenge. Uh, What if the kid grew up to be a writer, living in the shadow of two of the nation's foremost journalists? Um, Maybe this was just a a reaction to the harshness of what was done. Uh, Looking forward to what happens next. How do we handle that? Maybe it was a difficult area to focus on, on what happened. Um, I don't know. I feel like this is the decision that really causes things to go sour in the subsequent issues we'll be looking at. And I'll continue on this thought process a little bit as we go along. And my final note for this first issue as a whole is on page 47. We see Bruce's wife in a beekeeper outfit. In my earlier reads of this series, I always assumed that this was Julie Madison, but we never see that for sure. Mrs. Bruce Wayne's identity is not revealed in the series, and it makes sense why. Superman has always had a Lois Lane. Now, we mix in a little bit of Lana, Lori Lamaris. We mix those in now and again, but there's a central love interest, just like Green Lantern has Carol Ferris, Barry has Iris, and so on. Batman, however, has Vicki Vale, Silver St. Cloud, Chandra Kinsolving, even Selina Kyle, who he married on Earth too. But, no matter who Burns slotted in this position, it would have never really satisfied fans, despite it not being a major element to the story as a whole. So she goes nameless in the mini, for a good reason, and this was a solid first issue to the series, but the plot thickens with Superman and Batman Generations 2. This one was released on December 9th, 1998, and the first part is 1959 Strange Days. Aliens in need of a champion ask Batmite and Mr. Mixus Pitalik to test each other's respective heroes. Fortunately, Batman and Superman trick the two imps into turning on each other and convince the aliens to take them instead. Batman and Superman also face the problems of age and family. Bruce is on the verge of retirement, and Dick Grayson is set to take over as Batman. Meanwhile, Bruce Wayne Jr. trains to become the new Robin. The Kents discover their daughter Kara is developing superpowers. In the closing panels, an aged Lex Luthor reveals to young Joel Kent the truth about his heritage. I probably have the least to say about this section, despite it having the awesome Nixus Pedelec and Batmite. Uh, page 2. Unlike the transition between the chapters of the first issue, Batman's costume is unchanged in the decade between the issues. Nothing really relevant there, just an observation. Uh, page 4. Once again, Superman gets a huge introductory page. Now, to be fair, Batman was on page one, but he's left he's in the left-hand side of the page with the landscape taking center stage. But Superman takes up the bulk of the image with the city in the background, obscured by the giant Superman, although it's a good contrast since there are helicopters in both images, giving a bit of symmetry. Uh, page six, holy crap, the Kents had another child and she can float. Holy crap, Jimmy is going bald, which is our first member of Superman's supporting cast to show the progression of age, since Lois looks roughly the same age, a bit weathered, probably thanks to the rampant smoking habit she's developed. And of course, Jimmy has some wacky device that plays into the plot. It's it's classic Silver Age, and really, I have no complaint, but my question is, why is Lois wearing leopard print? It's so last season. Uh, page 11, hey... The Justice Society. Now, that would be something more geared towards the discussion of Generations 2, which fills us in on more a little bit more on the other heroes during this time frame. 
Uh, page 15, Lois gives Kara a red sun amulet to keep her powers on lockdown, but doesn't think that the kid will tell her brother that she has been floating. Right. Uh, sorry, that would be something that uh, a sister would rub into a brother's nose. Uh, page 16, Bruce Wayne Jr. Now, this was another character brought over from Burns' Captain America Batman book. Now, in that instant, it is Dick Grayson and Bruce Wayne Jr. that actually find and thaw out Captain America. It's that scene at the end that inspired John Byrne to do this series, actually. So one begat the other. Uh, page 17, Richard Grayson, Lawyer. That really kind of fits. Uh, if you have no Jason Todd dying, no Teen Titans, no superheroic distractions. Which makes me jump to page 24. Lex Luthor decides to let little Joel Kent in on a big, big secret. This may be the most diabolical Luthor we have seen in comics, save maybe All-Star Superman. Now I'm going to have more as, as the saga plays out, but let's jump to 1969, Changing Times. Uh, Kara Kent now helps her father as Supergirl, while Lois Kent is diagnosed with cancer and Joel Kent is reported missing in action in Vietnam. Dick Grayson, the new Batman, confronts the Joker Jr., who is actually the aged Joker himself, and the Joker kills Grayson in an elaborate trap, but Bruce Wayne Jr., the new Robin, switches uniforms with the fallen crime fighter so that the Batman legacy can continue. Uh, jumping to page 26. Remember how comics in 1969 dealt with issues like the Vietnam War and why Superman didn't jump across the pond and put Charlie in his place? Uh, me neither, no. But I'm imagining this as, 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 as close as we're going to get to how that would have played out. And we get a nice cameo from Richard Nixon. Uh, page 27, Dick is the more Neil Adams version of the Batman costume. Um, he's complete with a yellow oval, and Byrne makes this costume rock. He doesn't spare the blue or the gray, or I guess Mulville would be the, the one to credit for that one, but it immediately makes me think of Jose Garcia Lopez, and that can never be a bad thing. Uh, Superman looks cut. I've always liked the jawline that Byrne gives the Man of Steel, and the sleekness of his Superman, which manages to still have some weight to it. A nice balance of the two. Uh, page 28, Ghost Alfred is pretty awesome, and a nice way to keep what I think Bruce Wayne's uh, is really conscience, his emotional center. It's a nice way to keep that in the game. But if we're coming from the original Golden Age timeline, Alfred's tombstone would correctly read Alfred Beagle. And thank you to John Wilson and Michael, Michael Bailey for pointing that out on Facebook in our conversation, which goes back a ways now. Uh, still, I can't get mad at it when it's such a perfect scene. Whether Alfred is a ghost or a figment of Bruce's imagination, and we never actually get the easy answer on that. But uh, Alfred is a big component of Bruce in a lot of ways. Um, page 29, Bruce Jr. or BJ proves that a 19-year-old man in, a, in the original Robin costume looks ridiculous. And I don't understand why none of Dick's later costumes weren't available. Hmm. Uh, page 30, Gotham's landscape has changed as well, bringing with it a darker color scheme of oranges and dusky colors, and the hyper-stylized art and dirty, gritty version of, of a city corrupted from within. Now this, uh, this Gotham looks, it looks sick. Specifically the prison, and I don't mean that as a compliment, I mean it actually looks ill. Uh, specifically the prison, as Batman and Robin are leaving. I was immediately filled with the desire to go back to the simpler time of the previous section when things were a little more lighthearted, more straightforward, and something the book doesn't do is mourn the past. 
or wistfully look back at its brighter colors and more straightforward heroes. It leaves the reader to do that. As things get more and more complicated, as the characters run into conflictions internally, externally, as we see villains like the Joker aging and the city decay, it naturally leads you to a place where you yearn for the brighter styles of previous segments. Uh, page 31. Lois is told she has potentially fatal, fatal cancer and immediately decides to get her house in order and accept death. Not sure that this is in line with what I expect of Lois because she's a fighter and that's what I love about her. But even the doctor says it could be years. Uh, page 32, I really like Kara's Supergirl costume, even though the only tweak is actually to add red gloves and a dark wig. But it works for me. It really does. Uh, page 36, quick note here. I dig the setup that Batman costume can be compressed into a flash ring. I like that. Um, it does, of course, filter into the plot a little conveniently, but I'm still kind of amused. Still a little bit of Silver Age vibe. And I like the flash, so... Uh, page 41, the trap door in the chute with razor blades lining the walls. It really makes me clench up, even just thinking about it, just looking at this. It's so harsh and painful, and I immediately just get phantom paper cuts. I mean, I'm rubbing my arms now. Ooh. Um, ooh. Uh, page 42, uh, psychedelic images will win me over every time. And page 46, this is Batman's full-page awesomeness shot, carrying the body of Dick Grayson. Really? Look at this. I know this is a Superman show. And Superman is my favorite character, so I'm glad he's getting some awesome shots. I'm glad he's getting some lion shares of pinups. Uh, but Batman shares the title, and fair is fair. We should be seeing a little bit more grandiose Batman. Uh, page 47. Now let's go under the presumption that Ghost Alfred is a part of Bruce's mind. That means Alfred telling Bruce that Dick has to have gone to a better place. That means uh, Bruce is basically telling himself this. And Bruce is handling this death a lot better than the way he handled Jason Todd. But it's an older Bruce. This is one who has seen more adventures than the, the Bruce of death in the family. Who's been around for years, but not multiple decades. So that death in the family 80s Bruce, he had been around for quite a while. Uh, this is a Batman prepared for the inevitable. One who's probably embraced his own mortality or else he would not have retired as Batman and passed it on. And then again, we're dealing with a different Batman. The nearest we have seen is the Earth 2 Batman, but that timeline was different. I'm bordering on the obvious here, but this is where I hit the point in the narrative where I want to turn back. Dick Grayson is dead at the hands of the Joker. We have a new face in Batman's costume. Lois is dying, the son of Superman is a D-bag, and most likely dead in the fields of Vietnam. It's progressively getting darker, and there is no turning back to the primary colors of the Silver Age. But things can't get much bleaker, right? Wrong. Picking up with the second half of the series, Superman and Batman Generations Number 3 was released on January 13th of 1999, and the first half is 1979, Twilight of the Gods. Batman and Supergirl, or Superwoman as her father thinks of her, have become a heroic team and, as Bruce Wayne Jr. and Kara Kent plan to marry. Lois is still alive thanks to her physician, Dr. Holert, and Bruce and Kara's ceremony is disrupted by a superpowered Joel Kent who attacks and violently kills Kara. Joel's death in, Viet Joel's death in Vietnam was faked after Luther convinced him that Superman deliberately exposed him to gold kryptonite, 
so Joel couldn't replace him. Dr. Holkert reveals himself... Holert? Wow, that's a hard name to say. Dr. Holert reveals himself to be a disguised Lex Luthor, and he shows the world that Clark Kent is Superman, then kills Lois. Joel's powers are the result of a serum created by Luthor, but, as Luthor knows, the serum is unstable, and Joel dies a few minutes after killing his sister, living long enough for Luthor to mockingly inform him that he lied. Superman learns that Joel had fathered a son with a young Vietnamese woman and asks BJ to raise the boy as his own while he searches for the now-missing Luthor. Meanwhile, a 70-year-old Bruce Wayne on the trail of Raish al Ghul is captured by agents of the criminal mastermind. And my notes begin on page dos, two. Clark Kent looks quite stately with silver hair. It's hard to get on board with the idea that he has to reapply and remove the makeup every time he changes into Superman, but I get it in the context we're looking at. Page 4, another great splash, and Supergirl, or Superwoman, takes the primary focus with Batman in the background. I'm just going to say this, Byrne knows how to nail, just nail a splash page. Page 9, Jimmy Olsen grew older to look like Don Rickles. Uh, More of the sad, forlorn look back at the history, at the fading of the legends as we knew them. Uh, page 11, the Batman of the past meets a new nemesis, Ra's al Ghul, which is about right. Ra's really was a turning point for Batman's rogues gallery, a dark mirror of himself in a way that the Joker and the Penguin cannot. Like Bruce Wayne, he has monetary resources, fighting skill, and a vision. With a few tweaks of his worldview, Bruce could have easily been Ra's al Ghul, which is a statement that will prove ironic. Page 13, once again, Bruce Wayne Jr.'s mother remains a mystery within the context of this story. Page 14, Kara sweeps BJ into the air for a private encounter, and I can just hear Margot Kidder reciting, Can you read my mind? Um, page 16, I like that the armor Joel wears is the Superpowers Lex Luthor armor with an inverted Superman symbol. Uh, page 16. Man, Kara's wedding dress is dated. It's fitting for the story, I get it, but it's just ugly. Uh, page 20. Holy crap! He kills Lex Luthor, kills Lois in one panel. Abrupt human death. Also, this older version of Luthor sheds a lot of the Kurt Swan influence and looks more like Burns' post-crisis Lex Luthor, and he just snapped Lois Lane's neck, as if what he did to her in issue one wasn't harsh and severe enough, he just snaps her neck and Superman can't do a thing. It's horrific. Um, Page 21, I like Joel in the purple and green suit. It's a perfect amalgamation of Superman and Lex Luthor years before Connor Kent would be revealed to be just that. Page 24, this is an image. This, this, this is really an image that stayed with me for a very, very long time. The slaying of Kara Kent on her wedding day by her brother that she thought was dead, but was corrupted by the arch nemesis of her father minutes after her mother's death. I know it's a tragic day for Superman. I know that's where my focus, I guess, should be. But Kara is the tragedy here, and I never forgot the sort of Electra bullseye posing of the image. It's, for me, it is the absolute bleakest, darkest moment of the book. And that's even accounting for Joel's death. And I want to keep that thought process on page 25 because Batman finds his fallen bride in the rubble 
which has a lot of resonance to death in the family because the background, the way Batman approaches. I I wish this had happened a decade later into the story's timeline to kind of match up with death in the family. But let's be honest, that wouldn't have played correctly with the mechanics of the chronology. Uh, chrono- chronologically, jumping to page 28, after Luthor reveals that he manipulated and killed Joel, and Superman learns that his son was alive just to watch him die again, we get to something that bothers me a lot. Bruce Wayne Jr. decides that he will adopt Joel Kent's son. He decides that the child will be, will be raised as a Wayne. The mother of the child, Maylai, Maylay Kent, never offered the baby up for adoption. Bruce just took it upon himself to raise the kid, and the story gets... N- she gets no say in the matter? Maybe I'm reading into this scene wrong, and Bruce is saying that he will take care of Melee and the child, but it's stated in declarative statements, not asking if she would be interested, not asking her opinion. It's her child. Oh, and, and here's another thing while we're at it, though. The flip side of that coin, when Luthor was killing Joel, where was Melee? She couldn't have comforted... Uh, she couldn't have been to his side comforting Joel as he died? Anything? And let's be honest, um, obviously Luthor really crossed a line. A lot of lines have been crossed in this, this series. He needs to pay, and so we come to the second half of issue 3, 1989, Crime and Punishment. Bruce Wayne Jr., the third Batman, flies to the Fortress of Solitude to arrest Superman for murder. Superman had been hunting Luthor for the past 10 years and finally caught up with him, but not before Luthor engineered the deaths of Jimmy Olsen, Lucy Lane, and Perry White Jr. while Superman was occupied finding him. Luthor exposed Superman to the gold to gold kryptonite and revealed that he is really the ultra-humanite. In 1939, he transplanted his brain into the body of his assistant Lex Luthor, then known as L, after his rocket crashed while fleeing the 1939 World's Fair. His body and Luthor's brain apparently too badly damaged to survive unless the switch occurred. Uh, the Ultra-Humanite planned to move his brain into Superman's body, but Superman accidentally killed Ultra-Humanite while trying to escape after throwing a metal shard at him and causing him to be electrocuted by his equipment. When that happened, the villain's machines broadcast images of Superman apparently murdering Luthor in cold blood the world over, and it frames him. In the present, Superman lets Bruce Jane... Bruce Jane, awesome... He Superman lets Bruce Wayne Jr. take him to custody so that he can plead guilty to murder before the world court, even though the judges point out that he acted in self-defense and never meant to kill his enemy. Superman is not sure whether or not he might have been subconsciously influenced by his hatred of Luthor and requests to be sent to the Phantom Zone. The judges reasoning that putting him in a conventional prison without his powers could be dangerous and solitary confinement is too far too extreme given his past good deeds, Superman is put into that Kryptonian prison. Uh, so picking up on page 30, Hal Jordan as president? Of course. He's a pilot. He's basically Bill Pullman's character from Independence Day, if not for the Green Lantern ring. Is this where Hal Jordan would have been? Interesting, interesting question. Uh, page 33, this was a great buildup with a chuckle-inducing payoff. Three pages setting up how deep in, in the ground this vault is, how securely guarded it is, how ridiculously hard it is to get to the kryptonite, and Batman has already been there and gone. Uh, awesome. Pure Batman. Uh, page 35, I wish we could have gotten a splash page of the fortress, the Fortress of Solitude, in the same way as the Batcave, but the Titanic is in the shot. That helps a bit. 
So maybe Batman did get the better end of his deal by having his domain shown? I'm not sure. That's subjective. Uh, page 27. Superman still has statues of his family and friends, but the Kara statue is separated from the pack. It's in a place of honor, yet Lois is still in the classic lineup. I'm not sure what that says, really. Uh, especially after the secret is revealed at, on, on, on Kara's wedding day. Now, of course, in the sense of story mechanics with the Bruce Wayne Jr. Batman in his updated armor, finding the statue and coming to a dead stop, it had to be a slap in the face. Now, speaking of the Batman of 1989, what is up with the costume? He, he has a bit too much X-Men on him with a Wolverine cowl and Colossus-style armor. Now, on one hand, it shows that Bruce Wayne Jr. has made Batman his own, and has really grown into uh, more fully into the role. But it reeks of asbats at the same time, and it obscures the face fully with no room for expression, which takes away from the initial reaction to the Kara statue. And on page 41, this is a Luthor, well, I guess to be accurate, this is a an ultra-humanite, ultra-Luthor, that will go to a place no one has ever gone before, at least no Superman villain. He doesn't want to kill Superman in the physical sense, he wants to tear him apart emotionally and then take his place. And actually, my statement, actually, I stand corrected because in Ending Battle, Manchester Black did kind of do the sort of Bane scenario where he just puts Superman up against so much to wear him down, um, to break him apart emotionally. Um, so I stand corrected, but at this point, when the, when the book came out, in my defense, that hadn't come out. So this is the first time we've seen such a relentless assault on Superman uh, both personally and physically. Uh, page 42. I don't entirely get the reasons for adding the black border to the symbol. Beyond maybe a badge of mourning. Like what uh, Superman would wear after our worlds at war. But then the yellow of the symbol was replaced with black. So this doesn't visually entice me. It doesn't look right. The, the black on red was pretty cool, but this does not. Uh, page 43 and 44. The Revelation. Luthor was actually the ultra-humanite the whole time, which is a nice blurring of the continuities. And a genius move. The moment in my original reading experience when my mind was blown. This was such a genius touch to merge the two villains, who really were intertwined at their inception by accident, or so the legend goes. Page 46. So the question, did Superman subconsciously kill Lex Luthor? Somewhere in the recesses of his mind, was he still carrying the grudge of Luthor killing Lois, Kara, Joel, robbing Joel of his powers, killing all of his family and friends? But here's an even better question. Would it have been justified? Now, I'm not going to answer that question, but I do want to put it out for you to chew on, and maybe drop an email on the topic. Hint, hint, the email address is still mail at supermanforever.com. And now we come to the final installment of the series, Superman and Batman Generations number 4, which was released on February 10th of 1999. It, is, it begins with 1999, Beginnings and Endings. Batman 3 is brought to Ra's al Ghul, who is actually Bruce Wayne Sr. In 1979, Wayne had entered a Lazarus pit with Ra's al Ghul after Ra's discovered that if two people entered the pit, one would perish while the other would survive with apparently permanent immortality and none of the accompanying madness. Wayne survived and discovered that the pit had rejuvenated him and given him incredibly long life. In the years since, Wayne turned Ra's al Ghul's empire 
which was once a criminal empire, into a force for good, working so subtly that everyone assumed that his actions were a front for a criminal scheme without realizing that the front had become the real organization. Wayne asks Bruce Jr. to take over the operation while he returns as Batman. Batman frees Superman from the Phantom Zone and they investigate the Ultra-Humanite's death. Batman deduces that the Ultra-Humanite had perfected the super serum he used on Joel Kent and was planning to use it right after transplanting his brain into Superman's body as the serum only works on Kryptonians. The serum restores Superman's powers and he shares it with his grandson, Clark Wayne, a.k.a. Nightwing, that is Nightwing with a K, Feeling that he is no longer needed now and that there are so many other heroes, Superman leaves Earth in the capable hands of Batman and his grandson in order to protect the cosmos. Uh, starting off on page 7. See, Bruce becomes Raish. Two halves of a whole, like I said. Uh, Batman in his rogues gallery is something I would love to talk about. But this is Superman Forever Radio. Uh, page 9. I love the last panel here. It, it kind of informs my view on Batman quite a bit. Even when he's passed to the point that his vengeance is quelled, he will still want to come back for the sheer need of being Batman. On page 10, a Batman splash! Finally, an epic Batman splash, and I really like the replacement of yellow for silver in the post-Bruce uh, Wayne Jr. Batman. I also want to note that Bruce is beefier as well. Um, beautiful shot, just gorgeous. Page 14, oh yay, Superman is back from the Phantom Zone. And page 15, Nightwing's costume in this story. It's just not as cool as Dick Grayson's Nightwing. And once again, Superman drops a bomb on the kid. Oh hey, you're my grandson. Superman kind of needs to work on his tact skills. Um, page 17, speaking of costumes, wow, Kyle Rayner's costume is horrible. I get that it's a mishmash of Kyle's original costume and the Alan Scott costume, but those two don't mix at all. Uh, page 19, moments after gaining his powers back, Superman is able to whip up a batch of the super restoring elixir. I try to avoid other reviews when I'm covering something, so I can form my own opinion. But I did read one review of this series that asked, If Superman is able to analyze this formula and replicate it so easily, why was he not able to find a potion or formula to cure Lois Lane's cancer or, or even restore Joel's powers? In a word, experience. Um, this is a Superman who is not only older, but he has gained a perspective on the world from tragedy. And he's just spent a decade in the Phantom Zone where he has nothing to do but think of things. Which is something that is glossed over by a bit. Uh, ten years of nothingness. But he's been internalized for a decade, which which clearly is going to lead totally to a new perspective. And we've seen, based on the if this is the Phantom Zone based on the Silver Age or Bronze Age, if you're within the Phantom Zone, you can see the outside world. So that does help kind of inform a more mature, more thoughtful Superman than that would have been in in play when Lois actually got her sickness or when Joel lost his powers. Uh, page twenty-two. The splash of Superman leaving Earth, leaving Earth. It just... There's something in the face. A content expression tinged with sadness. And a bit of a conclusion to the tale of a Superman who has been in action since 1938. He's seen happiness. He's seen tragedy. Uh, he's seen heroism, villainy. And now he's leaving that phase behind to see what the grander universe has to offer. It says a lot about this story. 
And this this shot right here was the centerpiece of what made what made me really. It really meant it, it meant a lot to me because it to me solidifies what it means to be a Superman fan. Now, having read through the greatest Superman stories ever told, after seeing the many phases and incarnations of Superman placed between the two covers, but not connected, this was the miniseries that put it all in one order, because it all counts, and yet none of it counts. This is the culmination of that book for me, a history so crammed with experience that the planet Earth can't contain it, and a hero so mythical so great that he expands beyond what is known to touch the edges of the universe itself. It's also a fan perspective, looking back over different eras of my own Superman reading, looking for the safety and the newness of the early Burn stories, when the post-crisis era was still ahead of me, uh, the more simple trappings of the Silver Age, the period before the death, before the return, all of these represent a bit of a time capsule of that period in my life. And for me, when this story was complete, I had just ended a relationship that had begun in high school. Um, I was suddenly in the real world, and more on my own than ever before. And that meant, at least from my point of view, that the real world was ahead. Childhood was over. And this book, this shot, made me look back and remember when certain family members were still around. Uh, periods in childhood that were good, that were bad. It brought the history of Superman and my own personal history into focus at a time that I was beginning to really become a fully self-sufficient adult. And I think it helped me approach and inform both. So for me, this image really seals up why this book means something to me and what the story means to Superman. But the story isn't over. Um, there is still 2919. Batman meets Superman, uh, which is simply titled 2919. Batman meets Superman in his Fortress of Solitude, now an asteroid in a distant galaxy. Due to Superman's Kryptonian heritage and Batman's Lazarus Pit treatment, the two have aged at a very slow rate. As they reminisce, Superman recalls that they had actually met in 1929 when they were teenagers. Clark and Lois Lane were winners of a journalism contest held by Bruce Wayne, owner of the Gotham Gazette. While in Gotham City, uh, Superboy joins forces with Bruce, wearing his prototype Robin costume, to defeat a gang of criminals. In the present, they realize the galaxy has turned into a paradise under their protection and care. And they decide to leave the galaxy as they left Earth and protect the entire universe. They are then joined by Lana Lang, who thanks to magical powers has also gained a long life and married Superman. Now with this, the second half of the issue, I didn't have a lot of page by page notes. Um, we get to the end. We look back at the beginning, supporting a bit of what I've been saying about the book. Uh, really what I had to say hinges on page 48 in which Lana, who hasn't appeared in the book until now, uh, Superman and Batman walk off to their further adventures. And the final tag reads never the end. The fact is, these characters are going to live on well beyond me, well beyond you, our children, their children, so on and so forth, ad nauseum. There is a timelessness, and a thread that follows the book is no matter how much things change, Superman remains Superman. Batman remains Batman. 
there will always be inherent goodness to Superman and a noble darkness in Batman. In a time when people are still upset about the New 52 relaunch and saying that this is not their Superman, well, Superman is a many-faceted character. And as time goes by, he will change, he's going to age, he's going to move to new versions. But he is still Superman no matter what. And he will always be Superman. Forever. So really, I do hope you will pick up Superman and Batman Generations. Uh, Maybe read along if you have not already. I hope you will find a version of Superman that you like. That says what you are looking for in the character. And this is a great way to see what era speaks to you. And then you can pursue that era or that version. As it is, we're kind of running longer than I expected. Um, I'm going to put this book away. But it is available in trade form, so check it out. Let me know what you think. And I am going to take one more break, and then we will come back to look at an episode of Superman, the animated series. Be right back after this. In a world where planets die. I have come to the conclusion Krypton is doomed. Did I hear him right? Where good and evil fight a never-ending battle. But millions of people will die. Millions! Once again, the press underestimates me. One man will become a hero. Every world needs its heroes, Clark. They inspire us to be better than we are. And they protect us from the darkness that's just around the corner. One man will rise to the challenge. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird! It's a plane! One man will wear spandex. Well, one thing's for sure, nobody's going to be looking at your face. Mom? (laughs) Well, they don't call them tights for nothing. Presenting The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, a podcast looking at the Man of Steel's history via his earliest adventures in comics, radio, and film. Featuring reviews, commentary, creator spotlights, and more. Join the adventure at GreatCrypton.com. continue or pick up our coverage of Superman the Animated Series. Uh, This time around, picking up appropriately, the first episode of Season 2, Blasts from the Past Part 1, which, yes, will be a cliffhanger, so you'll need to come back on October 28th. Uh, This episode aired on September 8th of 1997. It was written by Robert Goodman, directed by Dan Ribba. Uh, Cast included, of course, Tim Daly as Superman Clark Kent, Dana Delaney as Lois Lane, George Zunda as Perry White, Clancy Brown as Lex Luthor, Victor Brandt as Professor Hamilton, Corey Burton as Brainiac, Ron Perlman as Jack Sir or Robber, in which he's uncredited, Leslie Easterbrook as Mala, and Carrie Tambazian as the female correspondent. Uh, the episode begins as Superman arrives at Star Labs to find Professor Hamilton struggling with a hidden compartment on Superman's ship. There is a device inside that gives a glimpse to the Phantom Zone, another dimension where Kryptonians put their prisoners. 
In an effort to adjust the viewer, Hamilton hits the wrong button and a giant monster pops out and begins to set about Metropolis with Superman in pursuit. Superman fights the monster, getting it back to Star Labs, where Hamilton and Superman manage to reactivate the Phantom Zone projector. Once the danger is over, a female voice calls out, saying that she has served her sentence. She seems unaware that Krypton is no more and insists that Jor-El, Superman's Kryptonian father, will know the truth of her predicament. Superman flies to his Arctic Fortress of Solitude, which has expanded a bit, and uses the Brainiac technology to learn that Mala was second in command of a, per- a planetary defenses, second to Jaxer. The holograms show that the thirst for power has corrupted Jaxer's mind, and Jaxer's troop storm the council, taking siege, but one young scientist, Jor-El, learned of their plan and managed to circumvent the attack. Jaxer and Mala were captured, and Mala had a reduced sentence in the Phantom Zone as she was seen as following orders. Seeing these images, Superman returns to Hamilton and announces that they are going to release Mala. Once released, Mala is stunned to see a yellow sun, and Superman has to break the bad news of Krypton's demise. To give her time to absorb the information, Superman flies Mala to the Star Labs retreat, where the two of them test out her newfound powers under a yellow sun. Superman declares that Mala must never use her powers to hurt people, and takes Mala for a night out on the town, pursuing bank robbers, splitting up to chase two different sets of robbers. Mala begins to show a bit of brutality with the robbers, and in the aftermath, Lois arrives on the scene of the robbery in time to see Mala making a speech about being Superman's second-in-command and how they will rule with benevolence. Back at the retreat, Mala watches new reports on Mala Mania, including Lex Luthor making accusations that Superman and Mala want to invade. Luthor even says that Superman should send her back to the Phantom Zone, which sets Mala off. And Mala flies back to Star Labs and spies a conversation between Superman and Hamilton. Superman wonders if he may need to send her back because of her power-hungry ways. Superman and Mala give an interview with Lois, and Superman maintains that they are not an item, which, once again, sets Mala off. And she attacks Lois. Superman rushes in to defend Lois, and a fight ensues between Superman and Mala. Superman gets Mala away, and they have a conversation in which Mala tells Superman that Jaxer would have taken over the planet by now, ending with Mala throwing Superman into a space needle type of structure, distracting him with saving the people inside. Superman immediately rushes to Star Labs to find Professor Professor Hamilton laying on the ground. Mala has taken the Phantom Zone projector. And in the woods near Star Labs, Mala activates the projector, and out comes Jaxer, ready to conquer. And with that, the episode ends with a big, fat, to-be-continued. But the the second season begins in high fashion. Uh, It really just hits the ground running. Uh, The monster... It momentarily attacks Metropolis. It didn't serve much purpose, other than to get the attention, uh, which was a bit of a waste of a really, really good monster design. Very Jack Kirby style. Uh, I like the the fortress interest in the water. He has to jump through the water and come up under an underground tunnel. I've always liked that. It's a little bit more secure than a giant yellow key or a tesseract. Uh, A little more realistic than a tesseract, I guess. Ron Perlman as Jack Sir is fantastic. What a great casting choice, really, and I can't wait to see more of him next time when I talk. I'll talk a little bit more about Jaxer, but I love that we get two perspectives of Jaxer and Mala storming the council chambers. Once from their POV, and then another to show that Jorel is already prepared and how he deactivates their ships and alerts the council. Uh, this is another nice background piece for Jorel. In, in, in Last Son of Krypton, we saw he was respected. Uh, save for the whole Krypton is exploding thing and counteracting, contradicting 
Yeah, can we just get that one to stick to the tape? Contradicting. I'm not going to edit that out for your entertainment. Contradicting uh, Brainiac. Uh, but here we kind of get a bit more on that. Because here's how he rose through the ranks, so to speak, and a bit on why Jor-El even had an audience with the council, considering that his theory would have been laughed off completely without audience if it had been anyone else. Um, one bit of relief was that Jor-El was not the jailer for Jaxer and Mala, which would have been maybe a bit too heavy-handed of a callback to Marlon Brando and Superman the movie. And once again, the designs for Krypton are breathtaking. Uh, Superman should have seen through Mala. He was maybe a bit too trusting, and I know Superman wants to see the good in everyone. And I've always liked that about him. It endears the character to me. But he should also know that the bad is there too. So maybe a short leash, short leash or a probationary period would have been wiser. Um, but as for the robbers and Mala being a bit more forceful, I think if the standards and practices of children's television had been more laxed, like they are today, uh, with shows like Young Justice, this would have been much more brutal. I'm uh, ultimately glad we also got a brief scene of Lex decrying the arrival of Mala and turning it into a photo op for himself. So... Let's talk about Mala. Oddly, Mala did appear in the comics, uh, with the first appearance in Superman number 65 from number uh, from 1950. Mala was a male character who resembled Superman. He was a Kryptonian, but crashed on, on the planet Earth with bro his brothers Kizo and Uban. And of course, the trio wanted to conquer Earth. That's what Kryptonians do when they, hit, they come to Earth. And, of course, Superman captured them, but Mala came back for one more appearance in Action Comics in 194 and 1954. Now, obviously, this name has been affixed to a very Feyora-type character, who is a female. And I'm relieved they didn't use the name Ursa, not because I don't like the name, but because it sets the animated universe apart from previous incarnations of the Superman mythology. Uh, Mala's design was unique. It doesn't owe a lot to previous incarnations of the character type, such as Feyora or Ursa. Uh, Mala held bulk, um, and it reminded me of a female fury, or maybe an Amazonian. And speaking of, of Amazons, Lois at one point says the line, then I'm Wonder Woman, but in the premiere episode of the Justice League, that's when Wonder Woman makes her world debut, so the line was a bit odd and unnecessary. Uh, back to Mala. Uh, she is voiced here by Leslie Easterbrook who's done a lot of horror films, especially those directed by Rob Zombie, which is not a bad choice, a bit off the beaten path compared to Ron Perlman. Uh, don't worry, I'll be talking more about Ron Perlman in the next episode. I assume many of you know who he is, but if you don't, I can't rob you of the awesomeness that is Ron Perlman. Um, one thing that did stand out was the fact that Superman used Brainiac technology by way of combining the orb with the ship's holographic messaging system. Hey, the last time Brainiac was used, bad, bad things happened, but who am I to argue with the Man of Steel? And although, as I stated on the onset of this mandate, the show has a pretty tight continuity, even if the episodes can be watched as standalone. Uh, the message projector was seen in the first episode, when Jor-El fills Clark in on his Kryptonian heritage, and the Brainiac orb was from Stolen Memories, which was the last time we saw Brainiac. Uh, the fortress has expanded to include the alien zoo, which Superman acquired in the two-part main man episodes, and no, Lobo isn't in there. Um, there is a case to be made for why the Phantom Zone projector was even tucked away in the infant's ship, but I have a small issue with that. Because looking back at the last son of Krypton, part one, 
Jor-El suggested that they evacuate into the Phantom Zone to escape Krypton's fate and leave once they find a suitable home. So maybe the hope was to send an emissary to find the planet and then open that gateway. However, this ship was not designed for that mission. It's a simple test craft, and if the Phantom Zone projector was in the ship with Kal-El headed for Earth, why wouldn't Jor-El and Lara just duck into the Phantom Zone hoping their son could save them someday? Uh, Jor-El's too smart for that. Now sure, the ship holds one, but this could have saved the whole family. Now maybe that's overthinking it a bit, but that's podcasting. But to send the Phantom Zone projector to Earth in the first place sets something like this up to happen. Whether it's a giant monster or two Kryptonian despots, something bad was bound to happen. And it's odd when I look back at the episode because it was a fairly idle in the grand scheme of things. But it managed to be captivating and weave the action into what amounts to exposition and a setup for this action-packed next episode. And this may be me, but the animation seems smoother in Season 2, and it's a bit more refined. The characters are more fluid. The backgrounds, especially at night, really catch the eye. My, my love for this show isn't hidden, and this episode makes part of my case for it. Because how often do we spend the episode establishing the threat, setting up the plot, and yet we don't feel cheated by what we got? Even as a setup, Blasts from the Past Part 1 was solid, so I give it 4 S-Shields out of 5. And that, my friends, wraps up the first episode of Superman Forever Radio in over a year. I just want to remind you to be here on October 28th of 2012 for a brand new episode since reruns aren't allowed in podcasting. Uh, Next time around, we're of course going to complete Blasts from the Past. And I will also be looking at the Superman Man of Steel action figure line from Kenner. So join me on October 28th. And until then, I am J. David Weeder saying keep on fighting for truth and justice forever. This has been Superman Forever Radio, a NatWorld production. You can find the show on iTunes with backlogs of episodes, where you can also leave a review. The show finds its home at supermanforever.com, and is a very proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, which you can find at supermanpodcastnetwork.com. You can friend the show on Facebook at, at facebook.com slash supermanforeverradio, and email the show at mail at supermanforever.com, the show is also on Tumblr at supermanforeverradio.tumblr.com. David can be found on Twitter at twitter.com slash superdaveweeder. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not gain profit from the images or related properties belonging to DC Comics or Warner Brothers Entertainment. Superman and all related characters, the distinctive likenesses thereof, are all properties of Warner Brothers Entertainment and DC Entertainment. All music and sound clips used on the show are copyright their respective owners, and no infringement is intended. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster.